we live in an increasingly violent world. A news release put out by the Council on Criminal Justice just July the 28th of this year indicates that over the past two years, homicides, homicides and gun assaults have trended upward. Though the number of homicides actually declined by 2% in the first half of this year compared to last year, actually they are 39% higher than during the first half of 2019. 39% more homicides. 4% more aggravated assaults. 19% more robberies. 6% more aggravated assaults, 8% more non-residential burglaries, and 20% more larcenies in the last two years. <coughs> and uh, motor vehicle thefts up by 15%. And actually, I hope that this doesn't come as a surprise to you. Because we are living in a post-Christian society. We're not even getting Christian ideology coming down from our leaders in our government now. We are in a post-Christian society. And Bible-believing Christians are facing increasing hostility. The result is persecution, even if it's only subtle at the present time here in the United States. For example, gender-related issues and debates regarding the right to life are areas where Christian values are most at odds with the values of this increasingly secular society. And the more we articulate the historically Christian understanding, the biblical teaching on these matters the more we find ourselves sneered at, marginalized, denied privileges, or even characterized as lacking love and immoral. We have been slowly working our way through Paul's letters, letter to the Christians at Rome, and I say slowly because this is actually our 14th week, and we've only covered the first four chapters. Kind of a snail's pace. But, you know, had I chosen to write just one sermon that covered basically from chapter 1, verse 18 up to and including today's text, I would have titled that message, The Need, The Way, and the Fruits of Justification. This would have been based on the fact that Paul began the body of his letter with an exposition on this need for justification. Verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. More than once, Paul said that you and I are without excuse. And he says that God gave them up more than once. Gave them up. Gave humanity up because humanity became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. And then he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I, I don't know how you understand the word all, but I understand it to include myself. We're all sinners. 
We have all fallen short. And then in the second section, chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 25, Paul shares with his readers, and therefore you and I as well, that there is a way of justification. Verse 21 began, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Most recently, in what many believe to be the most important single paragraph ever written, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, I shared with you how Paul brings out something of the grandeur of Christ's saving work. How he speaks of the righteousness of God and the sin of man and the salvation of Christ. And he views this salvation in three ways. Justification. That's a word from the law courts. Redemption. Imagery from the slave market. And as propitiation, the word is actually the hilasterion. It's the name of the mercy seat in the temple. The, the covering of the ark. The place where God shows His mercy. So you see, Paul uses legal language. He uses market language. He uses temple, cultic language. Basically, what he's trying to get us to understand is that what Christ did covers the whole spectrum. However you look at it. He justified us. He redeemed us. And He made a sacrifice for our sins. And now today we look at what would be part three of that sermon in which we look at the blessedness, the fruits of that righteousness. And so before we go into that, I just want to ask you a question. Last week we talked about Abraham and David as examples. What was really meant in chapter... Well, that's the text. We'll come back to my question when we get through the text. Here's the text for today. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. So, we looked at Abraham as an example. And we mentioned David as an example. But what was David speaking about in verses 6 to 8? I guess I don't even have that verse. Well, we can do it this way. I'll just read it for you. I've got it on my notes. I don't know how I didn't end up with a slide on the screen. Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 to 8. Now I'm still off. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his son. In this blessing, then only for the, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. What was David talking about? I mean, we move from the example of Abraham to the example of David, and God is still the person who in sheer grace does the crediting. But now, what he puts to our record is not faith as righteousness, but just righteousness itself. And so David quotes that beatitude. In Hebrew parallelism, he repeats the emphasis on the blessing. Not once, but three times. He refers to evil deeds, once as transgressions, lawlessness, and twice as sins, amartia, missing the mark. And the point is, is that sin is both the stepping over of a known boundary and the falling short of a known standard. But then three times he tells us what God has done with them. Our transgressions are forgiven. Our sins are covered. And the Lord will never count our sin against us. You see, instead of putting our sins into account against us, God pardons and covers them. So what's actually going on in our text for today is Paul is enlarging on that idea of the blessedness. And I think what's immediately noteworthy, I hope, yeah, is that at the end of Romans chapter 4 and at the beginning of Romans 5, there's a change in the pronoun. Paul had been using the first person pronoun we. The characteristic pronoun in the first half of Romans 
Chapter 1 is I, I'm not ashamed. In the second half, they, as Paul portrays the demoralized uh, pagan world. With chapter 2, the pronoun changes to you as he addresses first the moralizer, the one who is, is trying to point to the sins of others but not at their own sin. And so he says, you, you look at them and point at them, but you have no excuse. And then the Jew, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, in Romans 3, Paul reverts to they, describing first the whole world held accountable to God, and then all who believe, who in the first half of chapter 4 are called the offspring of Abraham. But suddenly... In the last phrase of Romans 4, verse 16 and 17, Paul introduces the first person plural by designating Abraham as the father of us all and as our father. And then, that first person plural is maintained for the rest of chapter 4. But now, as Paul begins chapter 5, he does it with a sequence of we affirmations. And these six bold assurances are based on the opening words of the fifth chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, I believe it's important to note. Let me just share this with you. I have a very high view of Scripture. I believe that we have the Bible as God intended for us to have the Bible. That's why I took the time to study the Greek language. That's why I took the time to study the Hebrew language. And you want to talk about a horrifying experience. My Hebrew exam over Isaiah was under none other than J.J. Owens who wrote the Analytical Guide to the Old Testament. And he said, it was an oral exam, one-on-one, -on -one, and he said, open to Isaiah chapter 43 and start translating it verse such and such. And then he'd say, stop, what part of speech is that? No, no, uh, no fluffing. In that kind of an exam. Paul, in the Greek language, when he is writing to us here, when he says we have been justified by faith, he uses what's known as the aorist tense. I don't go into a lot of Greek because I, I, I think we don't need it always. But when I think it's important, I'm going to emphasize it. The aorist tense refers to something that happens at a point in time in the past. He's speaking about something that took place at a moment in time in the past for each and every believer. Not some continuous action. And when we come to Romans 6 which right now is the focus of my intense research and writing, we're going to see that Paul will talk about our baptism also in the aorist tense. 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death and we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. Something that happened at a point in time. I'm not the person to come to if you want to argue whether or not baptism is necessary or important for salvation. Because I don't think the scriptures can be any clearer. Especially Romans 6. We are buried with Him by baptism. And that word meant immersed. It's used in recipes. I've told you this. For pickles. Making pickles. You can't make a pickle by sprinkling pickle juice on it or pouring pickle juice on it. What do you have to do to those cucumbers to make them pickles? You've got to immerse them. And in Romans 6, Paul says it's an image of us being buried with Him and burying the old self so that we can rise to walk in newness of life. And when Paul speaks about it, he speaks about it as something that happens at a point in time. We have been justified by faith. So, what is it that happens when we have that experience that Paul is so excited about and so intense on in these middle chapters of Romans? And that's where we come into these six bold assurances that we can have when we have been obedient and completed those things that we're called to do. First, he says, we have peace with God. The pursuit of peace is a universal human obsession. Whether it's intentional, international, industrial, domestic, or personal. Yet more fundamental than all of this is peace with God. The reconciled relationship with God. This is the first fun, this is the first blessing of justification. And so justification isn't just about being made right before God and reconciliation being brought back in relationship belongs with that justification. We are both justified and we are reconciled. A commentator by the name of Cranfield has written, God does not confer the status of righteousness upon us without at the same time giving himself to us in friendship and establishing peace between himself and us. And notice how Paul says that this peace comes and becomes ours through our Lord Jesus Christ who was delivered to death and raised from death in order to make it possible. This is the heart of the peace which the prophets foretold as the supreme blessing of the Messiah coming of Christmas. This is the hope of Advent Sunday, the Shalom that was inaugurated by Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. We have peace with God now as a present possession. Secondly, he says we're standing in grace. Literally. 
The passage reads, Through Him, that is Christ, we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we have taken our stand. Grace is normally God's free and unmerited favor. His undeserved, His unsolicited and unconditional love. But here, it's not so much His quality of graciousness that Paul is focusing on, but it's the sphere of God's grace. Our privileged position of acceptance by Him. By the way, Paul uses two verbs in relation to this grace. First, he says we have gained access into this grace. And then secondly, he says we have taken our stand firmly in this grace. In other words, we are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. That's what they're expressing there. Our relationship with God into which justification has brought us isn't something that's sporadic, but it's continuous. Not precarious, but secure. We don't fall in and out of grace like courtiers who find themselves in and out of favor with the king or politicians with the public. No, we stand in it. We can walk away from it. But as long as we are faithful and loyal to Christ, we don't have to have that fear. That's why Paul say later in chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Third, which is important for today, he says we rejoice in our hope. <coughs> this first Sunday, the emphasis on, of Advent is on, on hope. And can I remind you, can I remind you that Christian hope is not uncertain? I mean, think about it. We use the word hope every day in all kinds of funny ways. Well, I hope the weather's going to be good today. Or, oh, I hope we have good health during the holidays. Christian hope is a joyful, confident expectation. And it rests on the promises of God. That's what we saw in Abraham. And the object of our hope is the glory of God. Namely, the, the radiant splendor which we will be able to see in the end being fully displayed in the present. Because what he says is already his glory is being continuously revealed in the heavens and on earth. It's already been uniquely made manifest in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word, most notably in His death and resurrection. And one day, that curtain's going to be raised and the glory of God will be fully disclosed. First, Jesus will appear Himself with power and glory. And then second, we will not only see His glory, but we're going to be changed into it. And thirdly, he says even creation is groaning for that liberation. Even creation is desiring to be limited, liberated from that bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. 
I, I have shared over and over with you, I shared with those of us that went through the book of Revelation. The Bible doesn't talk about us going to heaven. The Bible talks about God bringing the new heaven and the new earth to us and dwelling with us who have been redeemed. Go read it for yourself. Revelation. The last 20, 21, 22. And that's why Paul's affirmations, the first three of his affirmations of blessedness, of the justified, the fruits of justification, relate to the past, the present, and the future. We have peace with God as a result of our past forgiveness. We are standing in grace, a present privilege. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory that some going to be our future inheritance. Peace, grace, joy, hope, and glory. All sounds pretty idyllic, doesn't it? Except for Paul's fourth affirmation. Verses 3 to 8. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, the sufferings in mind are usually translated as tribulations. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about what we sometimes call trials and tribulations of our earthly existence that are somehow going to be happening just before the end of time. We're facing those trials and tribulations now on an everyday basis. We are living in the last days and have been living in the last days since Christ ascended. And we will be living in the last days until He returns. And when He returns, it's not going to be to call up and leave behind people. When He returns, it's going to be Judgment Day. And we need to be ready. That is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Now, what He's referring to here is in our earthly existence... He's talking about our aches and pains, our fears and our frustrations, our deprivations and our disappointments. And he's referring in particular to the opposition and the persecution that we face in a hostile world. And so that's why Paul actually uses a very technical term for the suffering which God's people must expect. Jesus warned His disciples that in this world they would have trouble. Same word. When did Jesus' disciples first start living? Weren't they with Jesus and shortly after Jesus ascended? He was talking to those who had been following Him. He said, when I leave, you're going to face persecution. And they did. James, the brother of John, martyred. Stephen, martyred. Can it get any worse than that? Stoned to death. 
Now, don't tell me that things are going to get really bad at some point in the future, but then Christ's going to come. We're living in those times. And if you don't think we're living in those times, go over to some areas like China and Sudan where Christians are being persecuted on an everyday basis, their lives being taken. Paul similarly warned his converts that they, they, they're going to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So what should be our attitude toward these tough times, these tribulations? Well, he says right here, we need to be rejoicing. Not just some stoic attitude, but actually rejoicing. A recognition that there must be some kind of a divine rationale behind the suffering. And he goes on to say what it is. That it leads to glory. It can be productive if we respond to it positively. And the re way to respond to it positively is, is not the old uh, hee-haw. How many of you remember watching hee-haw on TV? Well, how'd that song go? Or it's nigga on me, war and tragedy, all I see. Despair. Despair and agony, yeah. <laughs> if you're sitting around moping because you're going through tough times, you're going to miss many of the blessings God has for you. No, we rejoice in those tough times. We don't respond with anger and bitterness. We respond because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And this last link in the chain, character produces hope. Perhaps because the God who is developing our character in the present can be relied on for the future. That's how we can be sure. That's how we can be, have assurance of God's love. Our assurance is based on the fact that, verse 5, God's poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that He's given us. Also by the fact that God demonstrated His justice on the cross. He proved His love. He died for us. Paul writes here, verse 8, while we were yet sinners. Don't go out here and tell people, yeah, get yourself cleaned up and then come to church with us. No. Come to church with us and God will do the cleaning up. I saw that firsthand when I was a teenager. We invited a motorcycle gang member out to our church camp and got in trouble for it. I, I just want to set the stage there. <laughs> They told us to go witnessing, and we went witnessing, and we saw this biker dude, and in a, in a part of our witnessing, we said, hey, we got this camp down here in, in White Mills. Yeah, I know where that thing's at. Well, why don't you come on down and see what it's like? Man, did those leaders, of, I was in high school, boy, did they get upset <laughs> when they heard that motorcycle coming through them. <laughs> and that first day, he was the same way he was when we saw him, at the strip mall when we witnessed. They sent us off and Bo Deaton was one of the ones who took him aside and witnessed to him and they gave him a Bible. 
The next day, he came back again and his motorcycle had all of the lights on it that it should have had on it the day before. He was wearing a helmet with a face mask that he wasn't wearing the day before. And his Bible showed that even if he hadn't read it all the way through, he had looked at almost every page in there for something. And that day he got baptized in the swimming pool at White Mills Christian Service Camp. Not because we told him out there at that strip mall, you get yourself all cleaned up and God will love you. No, we told him, come and find out about the love of God. Because we are saved through Christ. We're not saved through cleaning ourselves up. We're not saved by living perfectly. If we were saved by living perfectly, I would have absolutely no ground to stand up here before you today and try to share with you what my Bible says. Because I am a sinner saved by grace. We have been justified. We have peace. We are standing in grace. We rejoice in our hope and in our suffering. And yet there is more, much more still to come which is not ours yet. In fact, in verses 9 and 10 are notable examples of the familiar New Testament uh, tension between the already and the not yet. Between what Christ has accomplished at His first coming and what remains to be done in His second. Between our past and our future. For salvation has a future tense as well as past and present. And expressing it all positively, Paul says, we shall be saved through His life. That, that phrase, I love it. He gets all excited. He says something, he says, how much more? How much more? Twice. Yet there is more. And it's essential to Paul's argument that he stresses the costliness of these things. It was by His blood. Verse 9. Shed on a sacrificial cross that we've been justified. It was when we were God's enemies. Verse 10 that we were reconciled. You see, here is the logic. It's really pretty simple. If God has already done the difficult things, can't we trust Him to do the comparatively simple things of completing the task? If God has accomplished our justification at the cost of Christ's blood, much more will He save His justified people. And if He's reconciled us to Himself with when we were His enemies, much more will He finish our salvation now that we are reconciled as friends. Verse 10. 
These are the grounds on which we dare to affirm and can have assurance that we shall be saved. I was saved when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and submitted in obedience to baptism when I buried the old self and when I was brought up out of that watery baptism as a new person. But I still have the task of working out my salvation with fear and trembling. There is no such thing scripturally as once saved, always saved. I always have the choice of turning against God. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul says to Timothy, they have faith, but they shipwreck their faith. You can't shipwreck something you don't have. They had faith, but they shipwrecked it. They chose to walk away from God. I've heard people use that. He's holding you in His hand. That's right, He is. And as long as you're comfortable staying in that hand, He'll hold you in that hand. But don't think you can't jump out of that hand when you have little kids and you're bringing them up. Do you let them hold your hand? when you're around busy streets? Or do you hold their hand? You hold their hand. Because if you allow them to hold your hand, they can let go and take off in an instant, can't they? And He's allowing us to be in His hand and He's going to keep us there securely. But He's also, as a gentleman, going to say, I want a relationship. I don't want you to be my prisoner. And that's why, finally, the last affirmation he gives in verse 11 is that we can rejoice in God. And what's extraordinary about this sixth and this last affirmation is that verbally speaking, it's identical with the Jewish attitude which Paul has already condemned back in chapter 2 verse 17. Which the NIV paraphrases, you brag about your relationship to God. Literally, however, 2.17 reads, you boast in God. And 5.11 reads, we boast in God. The verb, the noun, the preposition, they're all the same. But it's different because as Christians, we are rejoicing. We are in exultation in God because it begins with the shamed face recognition that we have no claim on Him at all. It continues with wonder-filled worship that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us and it ends in our humble confidence that He will complete the work that He's begun. So to exalt in God is to rejoice not in our privileges like they were doing, but in our mercies. Not in possession of Him, but in His possession of us. So here's my challenge. As he summarizes this section of Paul's letter, John Stott writes, we should be the most positive in the world. For the new community of Jesus Christ is characterized not by a self-centered triumphalism, but by a God-centered worship. So the next three weeks, as we approach Christmas Eve and Christmas Sunday, 
Can we strive to be a new community characterized by God-centered worship which loves God with the totality of our being and just like the first commandment, loves our neighbors as ourselves? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today realizing that because of what your son Jesus did on our behalf, we can be saved. And we will be saved in a much fuller extent when the process is complete. That we will continue to be sinners until that day when we are made perfect. And we take on that glory as well. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for this hope that comes to us initially as a virgin-born babe in a manger. Thank you for the life he lived though. Not just that he was born of a virgin and then died on a cross, but thank you for all of those chapters that we have in between to help us understand how to live. And now help us to commit ourselves to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is going to be Go Tell It on the Mountain. You stand as we sing. Number 127. just one second. Deb Brewer is here with us this morning and she sent me, left me this nice fancy pink envelope with this information on it and in it. And uh, to be honest with you, I read through everything and I was still a bit baffled as to totally what it was that she wanted us to do. So I invited her to come and she's here and she's going to come forward and just tell us what this is all about. Okay, come on, Deb. Okay, well for some of you that don't know me, um, we moved here about a year ago from Lafayette. Yeah. Um, 
So we had lived in Lafayette for 30 years and moved to the small town of Brook and love it. Just love it. And I love this church. Um, I love that every week Chauncey gives people a chance to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know, it's, a, it's one thing to say um, uh, there is a Jesus. You know, the devil knows there's a Jesus. But um, giving us a chance to accept him as our 